If we could stand for the reading of God's word. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Praise be to God for his word. I've never been to any of my class reunions. I don't know if you guys go to class reunions. I've had several of them. I've never been to any of them, um, but I can tell from Facebook that there's more of us than they used to be. Uh, in that there's, there's more of almost all of us, like we've gained a lot of weight. Like we're different than we used to be, though we're kind of the same people. Uh, but not all of us have, have, have gone that direction. I was thinking of a, a classmate of mine just this week. Uh, it was my neighbor. Her name was Rhonda Glisson. Kind of lost track. I haven't really talked to Rhonda since high school graduation, except we're friends on Facebook. And I've kind of, uh, it's like all of my classmates kind of know what's happened. She went to college and she went to med school and she became a doctor. I couldn't believe that. And then she got promoted, and she's now teaching at the University of North Carolina Medical School. Dr. Rhonda, her name's Cardania now. I just can't believe it. Rhonda Glisson, I hardly knew her. Now she is a professor at a medical school. So if I went to back, and if I actually went to a, a, a high school reunion and talked to Rhonda, she would be substantially similar to who she was in the 1980s, 1990s, when she was my neighbor. There's a, a substantial continuity between who, she, between who she was then and who she is now. But it would be a mistake for me to treat her now as she was then. Because she's far different. She's developed in different ways. She's, she's done different things with her life. And so when we're thinking of somebody we've known for a long time, we have to think both like, what were they like and what are they like? Revelation, and particularly Revelation 1, gives us a picture of Jesus Christ as he is now as he is 
today. And I think a lot of times when we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus in our mind's eye as he was in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that is perfectly appropriate. There's a substantial similarity between Jesus as he was in the Gospels and as he is today. But there's also a substantial difference between the way he was and the way he is today. There's a substantial similarity, probably more similar than the, the way we were many years ago, because in Jesus, when he takes on flesh and we see him in the Gospels, that's a, that's a picture of one who's perfect in his human nature. So Jesus didn't develop between the Gospel of Matthew and today. He's not better in some way. He's not more virtuous because in his human nature he's already perfect and he always has been since the incarnation. There's a substantial similarity, but also there's a significant difference between Jesus as he is today and as he was in the incarnation. We read it for our call to worship in Philippians 2. He emptied himself in some way by taking on human form. Theologians would say in the incarnation... Jesus was existing in his state of humiliation. Humiliation. His glory was somehow shrouded in his humanity. But after the cross and the resurrection and he ascends to the throne, theologians say now Jesus is in his state of exaltation. Where though he still has human nature, it, is, it no longer shrouds his glory. The disciples got a a little glimpse of that at the Mount of Transfiguration when the curtain was pulled back just for a second. But the vision we have that that, uh, Dan read for us in Revelation 1 is a highly visually rich, uh, image-rich picture of the way Jesus is today. And we've said that part of the purpose of the book of Revelation is to fuel our imagination to follow Jesus in a broken world. Today we're seeing that Revelation fuels our imagination to embrace Jesus as he is now. And when we see Jesus as he is now, what we see is that he is actually always more than we think. He is always more than we think. He is always with us and he is always for us. He is more, with, and for. And that's just the beginning. Verse 9, Revelation 1, 9. So let's just set the stage for this thing. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom of God and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he's in this thing called the tribulation, which just means trouble. It just means trouble. Uh, if you're kind of from some tradition of Christianity, you know, there's, there's this thing called the tribulation. I don't know what that, where that comes from. Actually, all the word tribula- tribulation means is trouble. John was having trouble. There was persecution, oppression, suffering of God's people going on in the world. And John says, I am sharing in that with you because I am on an island called Patmos, which is an island in the Aegean Sea, in the, in the Mediterranean Sea, where... Uh, they exiled political prisoners, or they exiled people who were socially disruptive, like John. John was socially disruptive, and he said, instead of uh, executing them, they put him on an island so people could visit them, but they couldn't ever leave the island. They were exiled in this little island in the, uh, in the Mediterranean. Uh, and he says, I'm there because of the testimony of Jesus. 
So we're not sure what John did, but it was somehow connected to his witnessing to the authority of Jesus or his lifestyle. It's probable that the, the, the Roman emperor who was in charge at this time was a man named Domitian. Domitian required people to address him as Lord and God on, on pain of some uh, penalty. So as a Christian, I mean, they could do a lot of things. They, they pray for the emperors. They honor the emperors. One thing they cannot do is address them as Lord and God for obvious reasons because they have a Lord and God, Jesus, and they say, sorry, can't do that. Sometimes if you refuse to address the emperor or refer to him as Lord and God, it could be execution. But Patmos is like 800 miles from Rome, right? So it's far from the centers of power, and it doesn't do any good for a Roman governor to execute a, a prisoner like that because it just causes more rebellion. So... John did something. He had an opportunity to change his witness or his life in order to avoid arrest, and he said, no, I can't do it. So he kept doing whatever he was doing. He got arrested and exiled to the island of Patmos. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So full stop, that's a Sunday morning. He couldn't be worshiping with his brothers and sisters, so apparently he's having this private worship experience. And I heard behind me, a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. Those are seven churches. That actually is the order of the mail route of Asia, of Asia Minor, a letter that would have gone to those churches. That's the, in the order that the mail would have gone. Taylor's going to preach about that next week. But I love this. The what he, way he describes the voice of Jesus here. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now imagine somebody blowing a trumpet behind you. In the early days of the church plant, we were meeting in a gym smaller than this with no, uh, no curtains around, so it bounced everywhere. And the guy leading worship wanted his daughter to play one day, and she was a trumpetist. And it was the most painful worship experience I've ever had. One of my last acts as a youth pastor in the last millennium was I took our youth group to a concert at Kings Island of the OC Supertones. So some of you, I've told the story before, the Supertones are a ska band. You know what a ska band is? It's horns at like 120 decibels. And I remember thinking, during that concert, can you die? <laughs> from Because the trumpet... At that volume, it feels like it's cutting you in half. I, mean, I was already old at that point. I was like 28. I'm like, oh, I'm out. It was like you could feel it. Like you could, if you closed your eyes, you could feel the vibration coming through you. That's what John's saying, except it's coming from behind him. Like, oh, right? I heard this voice behind me like a trumpet, and it says I turned to see the voice. It was so feeling so solid, he thought he could see it when he turned. Um. So here's what he sees when he turns. He sees one who is always beyond us, one always more than we think. And so uh, let's just it's, walk through this sort of line by line. Uh, this is meant to be an overwhelming vision. We know this because John, this is the Apostle John, the one we get a sense of in the Gospels, was probably Jesus' closest friend. So he knew Jesus as well or better than anyone else. And I don't know if you saw the the. Uh, his response to this vision isn't like, oh, hey, Jesus, good to see you. Verse 17, his response is, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
He knows Jesus better than anybody, yet in this vision of Jesus, he is completely overwhelmed. And the intention, the intention of a passage like this is to overwhelm our senses. These rich images, let's see how we want to say it. These rich images that we have in the book of Revelation are not meant to be the final word on who Jesus is, but to be the beginning word on who Jesus is. It's not to close our understanding, but to begin to open it. It's, Jesus is always bigger than what's pictured here. He's pushing our imagination in this direction. So the, the appropriate response to this is not to say, okay, I got this now. But it's to say, what if Jesus is like this and this is just the beginning? What if, what if this is calling my imagination and the eyes of my heart and my understanding of Jesus to be more than it is right now? In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're taught that part of the way we are changed is to behold Christ with the, the eyes of our heart, as it were. And the, we, as we do that, we're changed from one degree of glory to another. And then John himself says in 1 John 3, 2, when Christ returns, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So there's some connection uh, between us beholding Jesus as he really is and being transformed into that same glory. So we behold him and we become like him. Revelation 1 is saying, would you behold him in this manner? He's more than you think. So let's just walk through it a bit. Verse 13, in the midst of the lampstands, Let's see. We'll get to the lampstands in a second. Uh, one like a son of man. I want to make sure we're going to get to the lampstands. Did I put that in here? Yep, okay. It, uh, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So that phrase, son of man, if you're a Bible reader, you tend to hear the phrase son of man like this. Wah, 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 wah. Bible word, Bible word, Bible word, next, okay? It's just a phrase that happens a lot. Where does that phrase come from? What does it mean? Sometimes it just means a human but sometimes it means a whole lot more. This phrase is actually coming from Daniel chapter 7. We mentioned this last week, which Revelation is springing from. I put this in your insert. This is a vision of Daniel. It says this, As I looked, Daniel, Old Testament, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his clothing was white as snow. We might just circle that word white there. And his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So you have this overwhelming picture of God in charge. The Ancient of Days, the Lord with a brilliant white robe and hair, fire-consuming power. But then, verse 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to, who, and to him, this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. The authority of the Ancient of Days in this vision is shared with this one like the Son of Man. And the Apostle John is saying, this is it. This is, what, this is the one Daniel was seeing. This is the one with this ultimate authority. This is him. Verse 13, 
He's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. If you dig back into the Old Testament, you see this is the garb of the high priest. The high priest, the one who was supposed to make intercession for the people. So the first thing front and center in this vision that John wants us to know about this one who's overwhelming is he's priestly. What he is for his people is one who makes intercession for them. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. He's reaching for metaphors there, right? What is the, it's like, what is the whitest thing I can think of? Like, oh, white wool, snow, which they barely saw in the, in the, in the ancient Near East unless they were in the mountains, right? That's the, 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 the purest thing they have there. And uh, in the Daniel 7 vision, who's the one with the white hair? It's the Ancient of Days. And in this vision, it's the Son of Man. So he's collapsing these two, saying there's a significant uh, connection between the Ancient of Days and the one like the Son of Man. You've been described in the same manner. Biblically, white hair is a song of a song, a sign of longevity and wisdom. This Jesus that's being pictured for us is eternally and completely wise. Wiser than we can know. Therefore, we only get like a, a metaphor pointing us to it. How wise is Jesus? I don't know. Just more. <laughs> more than we can imagine. More than we can think. You can imagine Jesus in full wisdom and then keep going. It's beyond our imagination. That's why he gives us images and metaphors. And this is inviting this question. What if Jesus has more wisdom than we do? What if we don't? friends, what if we don't have to hold all the future in our mind and hands? What if we don't have to know all the permutations of possibilities of our life and what might happen and why things have happened? What if we don't have to hold all of that wisdom because Jesus does? And what if he dispenses it to us as we need it? That's why it says in James 1.5, if you don't have wisdom, ask. Ask. That's a relational reality. Asking. This is a picture of a Jesus who's infinitely wise, who holds all wisdom about the past and the present and the future, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and is to come as he's revealed himself, about your life and mine, about this church, about every church, about the ways of the world, about the, the massive movements of geopolitics and the uh, movements of physics and everything else. He has that wisdom and more, and dispenses as we need it in relationship with him. Jesus is always more wise than we think. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, the Daniel 7 vision. Where is the fire? It's at the throne of the Ancient of Days, and now it's in the eyes of the Son of Man. These are eyes of penetrating vision. He sees all the way down, all the way through. Nothing is hidden. Taylor and I were at a denominational meeting yesterday. There was an all-week meeting. It was a very intense meeting. It was, a, it was actually a trial of a minister. These things happen occasionally. Not either one of us, but we were there. Um, <laughs> uh, and during one of the breaks, the, one of the, the judges, there were a panel of judges, one of the judges was 
speaking privately to another judge, just whispering to him, which is fine. That's what they do, right? That's what they're supposed to do. No problem with that, except that the microphone in front of him was both very good and turned on. So he thought he was whispering very private, secret things, and it was coming through the speaker loud and clear, right? And so some other guy's running from the back, Fred, the microphone is on, you know? What you think is hidden is not hidden at all. It's very clear. What does it mean that Jesus has eyes of, like fire? He sees all the way down. Nothing is hidden in our life. He sees all the way down. It's just a little bit later in Revelation 2, 23, says, I am the one who searches hearts and minds. Now, we hear that, and that's either very disconcerting or very comforting, or maybe a little bit of both. Right? It may be disconcerting because nothing is hidden in my life from Jesus, really. All the secret sins, not secret. And that's only disconcerting if either, let's see, we're hiding something or we believe whatever gets exposed is something we have to deal with in our own strength. If that's the case, you don't want Jesus with eyes that are like a flame of fire. But it doesn't matter. He has them. But this really is, should be very comforting to us. Why does Jesus expose everything in our life? He's the high priest. He, he makes intercession for his people. He exposes things to heal, to address and heal things in our life. And he uses means to do this. Sermons and friends and books and criticism, all these things. So the simple question is, are, are you hiding? Are you willing to be exposed Taylor and I this week also went to a conference called the Evan ETS, Evangelical Theological Society in Denver. It was with the seminary. Really, it's a conference where you go and you find that there's a lot of people out there who are super smart and a lot smarter than you, and you listen to them talk for a while. Um, and uh, that was my experience anyway. Like one of these things I'm like, I have no idea what this guy is saying, but I, all these other people do. Why is this? Because they're super smart. You know what I wanted? I wanted to be like that. I want to be admired like this dude named Matthew Barrett who speaks impenetrable paragraphs. And people are like, oh, very good. <laughs> I want that. You know why? Because my soul is sick. I want to be praised like that. And on the way back on the airplane, I'm listening to a podcast, and the Lord just used that to say, Roger, let's, selfish ambition is destructive. What is that? That's the flame of fire of the eyes of the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. That's metal refined by fire. A lot of commentators say this seems like it's deliberately ambiguous in that. Is it saying his feet are, his feet are still in the fire or they have been in the fire or both? And I think probably it's both. He came through the furnace at the cross, and he is still in the furnace of tribulation with his people, just like John is. John is not the only brother who shares in the tribulation of his people. Jesus is as well. He is with his people. This is one who's communicating to us, I am present and available to you. Right? I've been through suffering. I've been through the furnace. 
I know what it is to live in a a limited body in a broken world, Jesus would say. I know what tiredness is. I know exhaustion. I know weakness. I've been through the furnace of being sinned against in this world. I know what it is to be betrayed, lied to, lied about, shamed, humiliated, falsely accused, beaten, abused. I know what that is. And then he would say, I I know what suffering is. I took the wrath of heaven against sin. I know suffering. I know hardship. I know the intensest loneliness you can imagine. That's why his feet are burnished bronze. So another way we could say it is this. There's nowhere God's people can go in their life of suffering, frustration, or uncertainty. There's nowhere we can go in our life in those places that Jesus' burnished bronze feet have not already been. There's no place we can go in our life where Jesus' feet have not already been and will not go now with us. That's what this picture is communicating. Feet like burnished bronze refined by a fire we don't know about and will never know about. So all in in those lesser fires, he will go with us. He's always more available to us than we think, more helpful than we think. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. This is picked up from Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 43, where the glory of the Lord is being described, and it's described his voice is like many waters. That's a a lot of water. That's literally what it means. What would be a lot of water in the ancient Near East? The Mediterranean Sea. Where's John? He's on an island in the sea. So, uh, you know, the The sense is powerful and relentless waters that break on the shore over and over and over again. What it's communicating there is like as nobody is going to stop the relentless power of the ocean, nothing stops the relentless power of the voice of Jesus. I mean, you can stand on the beach of the ocean, close your eyes, and stop your ears. Say, I don't believe in this ocean. The ocean doesn't care, right? Because it doesn't derive its authority from our approval. It does what an ocean does, right? We could line people up shoulder to shoulder from Miami to what? Bar Harbor, Maine, on the Atlantic seaboard, shoulder to shoulder. I don't know how many millions of people that would be, a lot. And there could be philosophers and your next-door neighbor and college professors and musicians and entertainers and pundits and journalists and all the other folks, all the other important people in our culture. And they could close their eyes, stop their ears, and say to the ocean, I don't believe in you. Or they could shake their fists at the ocean and say, without our authority and permission, your tide doesn't get to go out or it doesn't get to come in. And you know what the ocean does? Whatever it wants to do. It doesn't care about the alleged authority of people closing its eyes, closing their eyes, or stopping their ears, or shaking their fists. Because it doesn't derive its authority from their approval. Nothing stops the ocean. Nothing stops the relentless power of the voice of Jesus. That's what it's communicating to us here. He is more authoritative than we think. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. In verse 20 we're going to see that the the stars are the messengers to the churches. We don't know if these are angels or pastors. 
I kind of like to think they're pastors, but I might be biased. Um, probably, maybe Taylor will clean that up next week. Yes? Good. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, he thinks they're angels. Whatever, right? So the, 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 it's communicating that the message to the churches is in the authoritative right hand of God. The messengers need to uh, submit to the authority of this one. Right? From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. That's, a, that's from Hebrews 4.12, when this, the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword, which brings healing to his people, and from Revelation 19, when that same sharp two-edged sword is what is used to strike down the wicked. The word of God is both that which is healing to God's people and the ultimate standard of judgment for everyone. It is the enduring reality That's what this is communicating to us. His enduring word is always more than we think. There's a couple ways to be relevant in this world. One is to be always shifting, like getting the being the latest and the greatest, and knowing exactly what's happening, what's in. The other is to be eternal and enduring and permanent. Right? The word of God is eternal, enduring, permanent, life-giving power, and the standard by which all things are judged. What if you don't care? What if you don't believe that? What if you shake your fist at that? It does. It's not asking your permission, right? He's just saying, this is what it is. This is, this is a gift to us for him to show us this. And just for good measure, as if all that was not enough, enough verse 16, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's all. Just the sun, <laughs> In intensity. The face of God in the scripture is his intimate, personal, favorable presence of blessing for his people. May God's face shine upon you. We say that at our, at our benediction sometimes. May his smile shine upon you. And what John sees is the face of Jesus, not just beaming, <laughs> but shining like the sun at Full strength. We use that phrase like the beaming face. You know, I get one of the privilege. I get to do something none of you get to do, and it happens. I get to marry people, and one of the privileges of a pastor who marries people, from where you stand, you got the the groom's party, you got the bride's party, you got everybody. Everybody stands up and turns to see the bride come in the back of the sanctuary or wedding venue now, because nobody gets married in church. But uh, come in the back, and everybody looks at that bride, and she is beaming. Right? Her face is shining. It means joy is coming out of her. I get to see that bride, and I'm the only one in the whole place that gets to see the groom, too, because he's standing right there. Everybody's looking the other way. His face is almost always also beaming. It's a sign of love and affection and delight, the beaming face. And what we have here is Jesus, like, beaming ferocity of love and pleasure for his people. It's overwhelming, like the sun shining in full strength. They didn't have an image more powerful than the sun shining in more strength. Now, maybe we don't either. Maybe we know big, of bigger suns now. Fine. He's more than we think. Bigger, better, more compassionate, more wise, more authoritative, more powerful, more intimate, more loving, more, more, more. And sometimes we just need to submit our lives to that vision. And as we do, we are made to be more like him. But he's not just more... He is with. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but look at uh, verse 13. 
And he and in the midst of the lampstands, it's full stop. I put in your insert a picture of a menorah. That's a Jewish lampstand with seven, um, uh, seven, like. Uh, place where the flames would come out. There would be like oil in there. Now when we think of a lampstand, we just, because the way we're made, we think of like one lamp, an individual lamp. That is not what this is talking about. This is talking about seven that would be connected down at the base of the menorah. That's, oh, that's certainly what that's talking about. That's in the temple in the Old Testament, and that's the picture. So they are distinct, but they're also connected. And the picture is Jesus walking in and out of these lampstands, and then we're told later, the lampstands are the churches. So the question is, where is Jesus in this picture? He's not standing over the church you better obey me. He's not standing under the church saying, well, I'll just do whatever makes you happy and hold you up, right? He's not standing apart from the church saying, you come over here. He is in the midst of the churches. He is with us. That's the picture that we're given of Jesus in his exalted glory. I'm with my people. And we see the, him giving the Spirit after the ascension to his people, to you. The Spirit then becomes called the Spirit of Christ, so part of Jesus dwelling in us is right here, him walking in the midst of the lampstands. That's what's being communicated. He is with us. Not just more, he is with. And not just more and with, he is also for us. So we'll close with this. Remember, G, uh, John has this picture, and it closes with Jesus' uh, face shining like the sun in full strength. Verse 17, what happens? When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead. He's paralyzed with fear. Now, I, I don't, I'm trying to think, have I ever had a time where I'm paralyzed with fear? Like in a dream, some of you have unfortunately had that in your own life. But I want us to catch the picture here. What does it mean for John to fall at his feet as though dead? It's not this. Right? It's on the ground in a fetal position or on his face or something. I'm not going to get down like that right now, but uh, I would have done that 20 years ago when my knee didn't hurt to get up. But uh, like on the ground, he's overwhelmed by what he sees. What does Jesus do? Does he say, that's right, now you see me clearly? Doesn't do that. What's he do? John's on the ground, on his face, maybe in a fetal position. <laughs> Jesus gets down, right? And he puts his hand on him. It's intensely personal. The same, the right hand of power. He takes that right hand of power and places it on John, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. And I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Be comforted. Do not fear. Oh, you should fear, perhaps, if I was against you. But I'm not. I am for you. And you've rightly seen all of my glory, and that's just a beginning. If you doubled your capacity to see glory, there would still be infinitely more. All of it. And I took all of that glory, all of that aliveness and full of not life, and I submitted it to death for you, John, and you, friends. Therefore, fear not. Fear not. I 
gave myself for you on a terrible Friday afternoon. We now call Good Friday. I was crucified. Because there was no other way to bring life into you that was my life. But I was given. And now I am alive for you. What's Jesus like now, guys? He's more than we think. He's with us. He's for us. He is more with for. I can guarantee you that my vision of Jesus is too small. And if it doubled or tripled or it was multiplied by ten times, it would still be too small. And so we get for eternity to grow into a grander and grander and grander vision of Christ, and we get to do it together. And right now, he stands in heaven to serve us, to communicate himself to us in fullness through his spirit. Part of the reason, way we experience that on a weekly basis is we come to the table. And it is, we say, it is, though it's at the hands of deacons or elders or friends serving it to us, this is really Jesus serving it to us through their hands. If you're in Christ by faith, this table is open to you. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite us to come to the table.